So the inspection of the property is to hire contractors who are specialists in plumbing and HVAC for us to make sure that anything hidden can be estimated. Before we get into it, I want to introduce you to Groundbreaker, today's sponsor and partner. They are an all-in-one suite of tools for small to medium-sized real estate syndicators. They've got a special focus on real estate syndicators with $1 million to $100 million assets under management. They help you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Groundbreaker will help you scale your business without the need to scale your overhead. So they're going to help reduce your costs because of the admin team that won't need to be as large. And they're going to help you reduce your risk of data breach because of the security systems that they have in place. They'll help you increase your revenue by growing your assets under management because you're going to be allowed to focus on the things that are most important, like business growth and operations, not those administrative logistics. And ultimately, they're going to help you elevate your company's brand and professionalism and investor experience because your investors are going to enjoy having this platform with all their information versus however you're currently doing it. Three things specifically about Groundbreaker I personally like. One, super easy to use from an investor standpoint and from a general partner standpoint. Two, it allows investors and general partners to fund electronically, meaning that a limited partner can complete their entire subscription and funding cycle without leaving the platform. And on the general partnership side, for distributions, you can set it up so that you can trigger bulk ACH payments within the platform. And then the last thing I really like about Groundbreaker is it's, well, it's cost effective. It's healthy to the bottom line. Their basic plan allows sponsors to sign up for as little as $100 per month with no limits on deals or investors. And you can read all about the pricing on their website. Speaking of their website, it is groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe, J-O-E. And when you go there, groundbreaker.co forward slash J-O-E you're going to get access to a pitch deck that the Groundbreaker team created so that you have a template should you want to use that and customize it for your own deal. So go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, today's guest is being interviewed by Theo Hicks. You know, Theo, he's with us every Friday on Follow Along Friday. You're going to get a lot of value from this conversation. So with that being said, let's get going. Hello, best of your listeners, and welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Theo Hicks, and today we'll be speaking with Bruce Wallette. Bruce, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And thank you for joining us. A little bit about Bruce. He's the owner of Bakerson, which is a full-time multifamily syndication company. He has over 18 years of a real estate investing experience. And Bakerfield has bought thousands of individual units, repositioned them, and sold them. He has a personal portfolio of 250 units. And then his track record is 16 multifamily deals that are 850 units. And he's also transacted over 2,000 single family homes. He is based in Phoenix, Arizona, and his website is Bakerson, 
B-A-K-E-R-S-O-N.com. So Bruce, you mind telling us some more about your background and what you're focused on today? That'd be great. So the first thing is the name Bakerson. I get called Mr. Bakerson or people say, where does that name come from? So I'd like to share that. I tell everybody that I'm an SOB. I'm a son of a baker. I grew up in the bakery business in Minneapolis. My grandfather started the Woolet Bakeries and I worked there as a kid and it's to pay homage to my father. He was alive when I named the company and he really at that time was suffering from cancer and he loved the name. He said, that's just awesome, boo. That's what he called me. So it's pretty fun to keep that name or have that name to, in his now memory. So that's where we came from. And I, I got started in real estate and tax lien foreclosures. And in the tax lien foreclosure world, it's a long and arduous process. So we found ways that we could get into the transactions in a shorter period. And I worked with a guy named Gary, who's now passed away. And he was my mentor. And one of the things is he left money on the table when we were negotiating with these people to buy their homes. And I said, Gary, you could spend 15, 20 grand for this house and turn it around and make money on it. And he said, no, that's not not my model. I buy the tax lien and if if they redeem the taxes, that's it. If they don't, then I get the house. So I said, well, what if I buy them? He said, go ahead. So I started buying houses that way from basically the Kiyosaki mindset of other people's money and picked up a triplex, duplex, and three houses. But then in 2002, I met Jack Martin and he and I wanted to go full-time in real estate. And we started finding houses and I could find more houses than we could possibly fix and sell or keep. So I was introduced to wholesaling. I mean, that's where I've done over 2000 transactions in the single family world. We were one of the top wholesalers volume wise in Phoenix. And when the market shifted in 2006 and seven, we got into land and then the market came back after it crashed. I got back into houses at the auction and what have you. But the transition to multifamily was the one that was almost accidental because we got squeezed out of the wholesaling world when we didn't adopt a technology like other people have. So to always adopt is something that's very important to us now is you need to pivot and turn as the market shifts because everybody is shifting to technology and we are still doing the driving the neighborhoods and the little yellow notes and everything done through the courthouse. But people were buying online, bidding online, getting loans online title insurance, the whole bit for $1,200, somebody would flip a property to them. And I thought, man, I can't compete with that. We were averaging around 5,800 a flip. So we ended up switching to multifamily and we did a couple dozen of those 20, 25 multifamily flips. And we said, Hey, we can buy, fix and sell those. So we ended up doing our first apartment deal in Phoenix, 64 unit with another group and bought 120 unit. And after that, we ended up buying six properties in Phoenix then when we thought the market peaked, we said, hey, we're going to look at Tucson. It's a little softer market, a little better margins. Let's go down there. And the values in Phoenix have almost doubled since we thought it peaked six years ago, right? Five years ago. So in Tucson, then we've done 11 projects. So it's actually 17 multifamily projects. The smallest being six units, the largest 120. Our sweet spot seems to be the 60 to 100 unit is where we're able to carve out our sweet spot. So that brings us to where we are today in the buy, fix, and sell However, we're in another transition where I want to buy and never sell. I do not enjoy the sale process, and I absolutely love the buy and stabilization process. I love the impact we have on the residents and the community. So that's really where we're going in the future is to buy and cash flow. That's interesting. So I don't think I've interviewed someone who flips apartments. So I know that you want to transition into the buy and hold strategy, but what would you say is the biggest difference on your end between fix and flipping just single family homes as opposed to fix and flipping these 60 to 100 unit apartment buildings? Is it the same thing, just the property is different or is there something different? 
Well, on the first flips we did in the apartment, we didn't fix and flip. We just flipped the contract. So that's where we flipped the apartments. That's what I was talking about there. But on the buy, fix and sell is a standard syndication you buy and within 24 to 36 months, you reposition the undervalued asset and sell it. So that's pretty typical in the market. So those are, I guess, not really flips. I probably used the wrong term there, but the buy, fix and sell the 17 projects we've done in Phoenix and Tucson and Arizona. So the difference between when we did the houses, even the ones that we went retail of all the over the 2000 houses, we did only 12 for full retail products. Everything else was buying them, cleaning them up, making them city of Phoenix primarily or city of Glendale compliant, and then selling to an investor. We do the trash out, get rid of the graffiti and all that. The difference between that and what we're doing in apartments is when you're selling a house, that's a commodity. When we do apartments, we're selling a business because we're putting residents in there. We're selling them as occupied units. So it's a traditional buy, fix, and sell apartment turn that is pretty popular right now. So you said 24 to 36 months from buy to sell, right? Yes, that's historically what we've done. Sure. So is a portion of that the fixing up and then you stabilize and then you sell, correct? Yes. So of the 24 to 36 months, what's the breakdown? How long does it usually take to fix them up? And then how long does it take to stabilize them? Okay. On the larger project, like the 74 unit in Tucson took us three years. We bought it with 35 units occupied. So 50% vacancy or 55% vacancy. We ran it down to 17 occupied units. So basically there was a valley of death there where we had a huge debt coverage to cover with no income. So that was part of the the process. So that takes about eight to 12 months to get through that, the whole cycle of, of getting in and repositioning those and putting in new residents. And then the next year was where we did the additional value add, where we updated some of the units that were already occupied and pushed the rents up to market. And then the last year is just getting from the 70% stabilized to 90%. Because when you go all the way down to vacant back up, it takes a good 12 to 18 months to create a really stable balance sheet. People say, oh, you can do it in six to nine months. You can get there in six to nine months, but just keep it stable. When you ramp up that fast, you get a lot of residents you wish you wouldn't have signed up for mm-hmm. because you take anything you can to get in the door. So that is the reality that we have seen, at least in our experience. I'm not saying that's everybody's experience, but that's been our experience, is it really takes 18 months to get from when you're filling the units till it's completely stabilized. Sure. So just to kind of dive into that just a little bit, make sure I'm understanding correctly. So you bought it at 55% vacancy for that deal. And they said it went down to 17 units occupied. Is that because you evicted people that had a low quality residence? Or I guess I'm going to understand because you said that after eight to 12 months, it was occupied and then you did the value add. So are you turning over the units first? And then once you've got them occupied, then you do the renovations? Or are you doing the renovations right away? Okay. This particular one was a slumlord that owned the property. So it was really, really rough shape. So there's some units that just needed paint and carpet. So we just did paint and carpet and we're moving people in. But then after that, those turned, we would update the cabinets. We'd update the countertops, update the flooring on some of those. So it was almost like a two-phase value add. First was to get rid of all the problematic tenants. And yes, that's when we went down to 17. It was like a drive-through pharmacy. It was high, high crime. And we had to get rid of the bad residents and get a stable resident base in there. And that took a wave of people to get through there because we ended up getting some bad people in initially and we had to do a second wave of moving those people out. And when they moved those out, then we did some updates to some of the units to show that, hey, if you update these units to this level, you can push the rents to market. And that's the value of the meat we left on the bone for the new buyer, that they can finish that, that push through the rest of the units. 
So is that a typical deal where it's not stabilized when you buy it? Like it's got high vacancy or are you buying a mixed bag of deals? Like I do you target these types of deals that are really distressed or is your net a little bit wider? Well, the net is wider now, but initially, yeah, that's what we targeted. We would look for the roughest property in a somewhat stable neighborhood and really zero in on that through our own efforts and the broker efforts to buy that property. There was a 32 unit in Tucson that we brought down to four occupied units. There was a 75 unit that was about 75, 80% occupied when we bought it. We brought it to under 50%. 52 unit brought it to under 50% because they were really, really rough properties and they may have been a good quality product as far as the asset goes, but that resident base was really, really rough where the property managers lost control. So we targeted those. However, it's been more and more difficult to find those type of properties in our current market cycle. So we have broadened the net now where we are looking. Our last purchase is a 90 unit in Tucson is a stabilized asset. It was over 90% occupied with a lot of economic vacancy. And then we fixed the economic vacancy. We're at 80% occupied. Now we're back up to over 90. Is there a value add renovation play on that deal? Or was it still just a resident quality issue? No, there will be a play on that as well for updating the units. It's an older building that does need some effort. It's not bad, but we can certainly upgrade the units. The beauty behind this one is the units are average square feet is thousands. So they're quite large. So we have an opportunity to bring in a more stable family resident base than the more transient single. And then you're raising money for these deals, like you're syndicating them with the limited partners? Yes. What type of compensation structure is offered? Do you do a preferred return? Is it a profit split? Do I start getting a preferred return right away or is it delayed until sale? How's that work from the people who are investing in your deals? To date, there's been two times where there's money exchanged. Once when they invest the money and the second one when they get it back. And in between, there is no distributions just because the assets have been negative cash flow. So that's how it's been historically. And there's a pref or a split. So because there's heavy value add, there's a little more favor to the sponsor for the return than some of the other syndications that you see. So the investors still get mid-teens return, but it comes in a lump sum. It's not distributed quarterly or, or monthly. However, the asset we're looking at right now to buy would have immediate, probably second quarter, there would be distribution. So we are moving more towards a stabilized asset where, where we can come into the market and finish the value add that somebody else has started, kind of how we sold properties previously. But we're looking at 150 to 200 units for the stabilized assets, under 100 units for the heavy, heavy value add. Whenever you're initially underwriting a deal, so not during the due diligence when you can kind of go into more detail on the property, you mentioned that, for example, on these deals where you buy them and they were really distressed, maybe the property was fine, but it was more of a resident issue. So you know they're going to go in there and reduce the vacancy to some unknown level. And then obviously during that time, you're going to have to cover that bed service, cover your expenses. So how are you calculating what that number is? So how do you know how much extra money you need to raise to cover the holding costs during that first phase of the value-add project? We project pretty accurately how we're going to vacate the units based on what we see when we do our inspection you get a pretty good feel for, okay, what number of residents are going to have to be let go. And then you also look at their historicals. Now on one where the resident base is not stable, that you would see what their delinquency rates are and you just have a feeling, okay, there's going to be this many. And it's from experience that knowing that we're going to vacate this many units. So with that, plus the reserves that we save, there's always been enough to cover the negative cash flow 
during that part of the renovation or the value add. So it's put on a spreadsheet and we just build like a Gantt chart of when things are going to start and when they're going to end. What is that, what we call the valley of death? What is our valley of death? Okay, it's nine months. Okay, so we need to plan for more than nine months because it may take longer or we may have to plan for more vacant units. It may be a deeper valley than what we projected. So we do the stress test, worst case scenarios, and what does that timeline look like? And then we put that into reserves. Do you know the death valley before the deal's in our contract or the not until after they've done all these inspections that you know? No, it's during the due diligence that that is discovered. So how do you come up with the initial offer price? The initial offer price is based on four things, price per square foot, price per unit, and then based on the rent they're getting per square foot and rent per unit. So if they're not a performing asset, you can't buy it on a cap rate, right? So you say, okay, I know that once this is stabilized, this property could be worth, let's say, $6 million. So you'd be able to back out the numbers. What is the estimated cost for renovations? Well, we'll have estimate, I guess, value of death, but it won't be finalized until we get through the underwriting after the inspection. But we usually have a pretty good idea on what the assets will trade for in that market and then plug those numbers into the spreadsheet. All right. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? I like to go opinions because advice comes with so much responsibility, right? (laughs) Just looking at the words. But for me, it's two parts. It's focusing on the resident. And then also when you're doing the inspection to really dive deep into the plumbing and HVAC, that's the area where it seems to be the most hidden costs in our projects has been plumbing and HVAC. So the inspection of the property is to hire contractors who are specialists in plumbing and HVAC for us to make sure that anything hidden can be estimated. I wish I would have had this interview three years ago when I bought all these fourplexes and the plumbing and the HVAC were absolute disasters and the inspector, I had missed that. All right, Bruce, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yes, sir. All right, first, a quick word from our sponsor. Groundbreaker helps you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. That's groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe to get a free deal pitch deck template. Are you looking to earn passive income through turnkey rental properties? If so, then go check out hipsterinvestments.com. Allie Boone's the founder of Hipster Investments. It's a aesthetically pleasing website, and you'll know what I mean when you go check it out. I just love the color palette. In addition to that, though, Allie has some wonderful content on both passive investing through turnkey rental properties as well as how to design your life. Go to hipsterinvestments.com. Okay, what is the best ever book you've recently read? That would be Relentless by Tim S. Grover. If your business were to collapse today, what would you do next? I would do podcasts with you. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> uh, what is the best ever deal you've done? The best ever deal is my favorite one. is a 22 unit in Glendale that was in bankruptcy, foreclosure, a lawsuit, and the owner was arrested for uh, drugs and prostitution, and it was vacant, boarded, distressed, and it was scheduled for demolition. And we were able to save the property, turn it around, and sell it as fully occupied asset. That is our favorite deal. What about a deal that you've lost money on? How much did you lose and what lesson did you learn? Well, the only deal that I lost money on is one that we didn't buy. We had to walk away from the earnest money because we Mm -hmm. were uncertain of the market. So we end up losing some earnest money. But as far as the projects go, they've been profitable. 
What is the best ever way you like to give back? I like to give back by sharing anything that people ask of me, that there is no secrets. And I'd rather people would learn from people like me and you in the industry and not from what they find on Google. And then lastly, what's the best ever place to reach you? You can call or text me at 520-808-9111. That is my cell and I invite people to reach out or Bruce at Bakerson.com. All right, Bruce. Well, thank you for joining us today and walking us through your multifamily strategy. So it's kind of changing a little bit now, but what you were doing, we're focusing on very specific 60 to 100 units. These are properties that were very distressed and it didn't necessarily need to be the actual property was distressed. So it's kind of like a property or operationally distressed. So as you mentioned, your best deal was the property and operations were a mess, but it could also be something where the asset is in good condition, but the resident base needs to be turned over. And so you'll acquire the properties. And then during that valley of death, I think is what you called it, you'll drop the vacancy so that you get all of the low quality tenants out. You get better quality tenants in, once that phase is done, the second phase would be to upgrade the units and to kind of implement the value add strategy. And then you will sell those properties as a business, right? Because the property is stabilized and you'll sell that as a business to someone else. And said, but now because of the fact that those deals are kind of harder to find, you're transitioning into more into properties that are going to be more of a, a buy, fix and hold strategy. We talked about the limited partner structure. So they invest and they get the lump sum on the back end, whether it's a preferred return or a profit split. You talked about how you determine the upfront reserves, how to cover these holding costs during the death valley. And it's basically, you've got a, a spreadsheet where you'll go in there during the inspection, you look at delinquency rates, to be able to plug in the numbers to your spreadsheet to determine exactly how long it'll take to stabilize a property based off of the current occupancy and then the number of people that you're going to have to remove and then bring back in how long that takes. We also talked about how you come up with your offer price. So it was a price per square foot, price per unit, rent per unit, rent per square foot, estimated cost of renovations, estimated death valley time, and the after renovation value to calculate the offer price. In the beginning, you actually talked about a piece of advice about making sure you're always pivoting when the market shifts. So you give the example of wholesaling and how you didn't transition into tech, which is why you accidentally got into multifamily. And then your best ever advice, or what she said is your best ever opinion, was to number one, focus on the resident. And number two, and I can concur with this wholeheartedly, is during the inspection, make sure you take a deep dive into the plumbing and the HVAC, because those are where the most expensive hidden issues are. So thanks again, Bruce, for joining us today. Best ever listeners, as always, thank you for listening. Have a best ever day, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.